Welcome to episode 5 of Chin Music, a podcast presented by Fancraft. My name is Kevin Goldstein. Joining me, uh, it couldn't be happier. He was going to join us earlier, but then something happened, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, if you are ancient and listened to my old show a decade ago, he was a friend of the show. You know, he was the best friend of the show, and joining us from his luxurious accommodations in Brooklyn, New York, he was a beat writer for the Mets and Yankees. He wrote about the Mexican national team for ESPN. He was editor-in-chief, editor-in-sports chief, whatever you want to put it. He did the sports stuff at Vice, and he's currently the Metro editor at the New York Times, uh, heading up their pandemic coverage for the Metro section. It's Jorge Arangueri. Jorge, how are you? I'm doing really well, Kevin. And I have to say, like, I never thought I'd be co-hosting another podcast with you <laughs> ever in my life. Um <laughs> But the fact that we're here in, in so you're saying I owe you an apology. <laughs> the fact that we're here in 2021, and you know, I can sit here and co-host a podcast with you and have a beverage, an adult beverage, um, is is kind of just I don't know. It's it's a highlight of 2021 so far, <laughs> I have to say. And this is not like a knock on 2021. I would this would be a highlight if this was, you know, a non-pandemic situation, but. It's definitely a highlight in it is a in knock. This, into his 2021. And this is our, this is the first one. This is episode five this is the first episode I've recorded in the evening, and I also have an adult beverage. That's so, gr- that's great. I mean, I feel like it's fitting, what right? Yeah. I mean, like you know, like I I have to say, I mean, I had so much fun being a part of the previous podcast at times, um, and it was a small part. Like honestly, if. Like you wanted to rank me in the up and in um, cinematic universe, I would be like one of the lame ones. Like, no, I'd be, you'd be number I'd be one. Like, I'd be like Hawkeye. Like I wouldn't be like a Captain America or an Iron Man. I would be. You, you would know, have a like cult maybe, following. I would. I would maybe have a cult following, but I I know my place in the up and in cinematic universe, <laughs> and it's not as a star character, but you know, as a supporting character that played an important role. I would. I would leave it at that. Now, uh, for for people who don't know, uh, you are you're, you're born Tijuana. You have San Diego roots. You are a Padres fan. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm long suffering Padres. Fan. I was going to say, like a, a previous time, like that was that was something to be joked at about. Like that was something to be ridiculed. And now the Padres are good. How is how have you adjusted to this mentally? It's it's been such an amazing turnaround and. Listen, I think we all knew a few years ago that they were building towards uh, a sort of a rebuild. But, you know, I mean, I don't always work. Yeah. I mean, I I certainly will not sit here and tell you that I thought that they would be spending loads and loads of money on a guy like (laughs) Machado or that they would bring in. Listen, I whatever you think of Hosmer and whatever, 
the fact that they would spend money on a player like that, the fact that they've made these trades. I have lived for the moment when the Padres would be like a disliked team. And and we've gotten to that moment. We've gotten to the moment where people are like talking shit about the San Diego Padres and you've like angered Dodgers fans. We're no longer are an irrelevant fan group. And that's all that I've ever wanted. Um, you know, like during my time at ESPN, I remember that we would have like these yearly baseball summits. Um, yes, I've pre- been to those. Yeah, pre- Like a preseason meeting where you just talk about ball and the upcoming season. And I just remember there was one in particular where they were like going around and like sort of showing like the, you know, traffic for certain teams and ranking and how each team ranked. I shit you not, Kevin, the Padres were the least trafficked baseball team in the entire ESPN universe. Like people gave less shits about the Padres (laughs) than any other team in the entire league. So to sit here now... And, like, have people constantly talking about the Padres to have, like, you know, your guys' prospect people be like, I can't answer any more Padres questions. It's just kind of like, (laughs) it's just kind of this amazing turnaround that I would have never in my life predicted. But it's great. I am very much looking forward to the season. Um, I am contemplating buying, you know, some, some baseball cards just in case, you know, I get a few Padres. Like I, and this is like a, just the weirdest thing, you know. Like I'm like, I, I kind of want some baseball cards, and I I haven't bought baseball cards in ages. So it's like I'm super into this season and this team and this environment. Let's go. I'm ready. Do you think they have like a sudden weird advantage in the sense that like? I mean, obviously, a long time ago, the Clippers left for Los Angeles, but now the football, like, they're the only game in town as far as major sports, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the San Diego paper still covers the Chargers, which, which I mean, I understand there's a fan base. Yeah. I can tell you right now that the football team that formerly was in San Diego is dead to me. They, I wish they would lose every game. <laughs> so... Did, the did, Padres the Padres are what we have and as a San Diegan as a San Diego sports fan all of my collective energy is being put in this one franchise <laughs> even more so than it ever was but now I don't even have to be distracted by what used to be an NFL team affiliation like I am now 100% of my sports soul is dedicated to the San Diego Padres now, last year, like, did you even? I know you wouldn't. You're, you, I obviously, you, your COVID is a huge part of your life. Uh, at times up close, as we'll talk about later. But you know, when the Padres were in the playoffs last year, like, did you think, oh shit, if this wasn't going on, I would maybe pick it all up and go there? I, you know, I, I didn't really think about it that way. I mean, I, I will say that I, as you know, I, I lead pandemic coverage as one of the you know metro editors and the one in charge of this specific topic, um, and so I was really hesitant about whether there should be a season. I didn't really mm-hmm. think it was a great idea. I was very down on it. I, you know, I didn't want people to be put in danger. I certainly didn't want any of these players to be put in danger. Um, and you know, I have to say that I. It ended up being a nice sort of distraction, you know, more than I thought it would be. Yeah, I agree. 
And again, listen, if the Padres were in last place and <laughs> lost, you know, 70% of their games, would it have been a nice distraction? I, probably not. Um, but the fact that they were good, they were exciting, they made the playoffs, um, they, they went for it, they made trades that didn't, you know, necessarily didn't work out. Nola wasn't great. Once they got him, he had, you know, a broken toe. I, you know, obviously the injuries uh, to the starting pitching staff was unfortunate. But it, it really did add add something. And I didn't really think about going, but it, it, it was a really, really, really good distraction. And more than I thought it would be. And I, I, I ended up watching more than I thought I would because I, you know, I was dead set on protesting and not watching. And I just couldn't help it. I couldn't yeah. help myself. And I didn't, you know, at some point I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to feel guilty about this. I'm going to watch. I'm going to enjoy and, you know, and, and and hope that the playoffs sort of, you know, resemble something like normalcy. Right. Um, having said that, you know, the Dodgers winning, I think it's a fraud that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not, a, you know, I, I don't consider them a real world champion. Let's be honest. Um, yeah, I, I can't say anything about the Dodgers and World Series without getting threats. So. <laughs> um, but simple. let's be, you know, I, I put an asterisk on it. They don't, they don't, they don't get to be world champions. It's a sixty-game season. Come on, it's not a real season. So, like, like who's your guy on this team? You can't like Fernando Tatis is the face of the franchise. You know, one of the most exciting players in baseball. Uh, you can't take either. You can't take any player who has a three hundred million dollar contract. Who's like your favorite player on this team? Like, who's like your favorite? sleeper guy on this team the guy who's not the big star i like cronenberg cronenberg um, cronenworth i like cronenberg's film i'm sorry yeah cronenworth i'm sorry i always get that mixed up because I, I just really actually just call him crony i don't really use the full last name um i like crony just because um he would be the type of player that in 2008 would be the padres best player <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, he's the kind of guy that they would have built their franchise around in 2008 <laughs> Um, he would have been their all-star representative and now he's like their sixth best player, but he does the things that you like a player to do. Um, and he's just a very unexpected surprise and they got him for, you know, a fairly cheap price. Whereas in the past, he would have been the guy that they drafted like with the third pick. <laughs> he, you know, he's like the best version of like right. the guys that they drafted from 2000, and t- 2000 to 2010. A little, little college performer. Exactly. Like the Spanbergs and all those mm-hmm. kinds of guys, except he's like the best case scenario of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, he's just like a guy that, that kind of pops up on you. But obviously, I mean, how can you not love Tatis? He's the kind well, of guy. He's the, he's the gimme, which is why I wanted to. He's kick the him gimme. Out of here. I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, everybody's a distant second behind Tatis. I mean, I, I can't imagine committing myself to anything for the next fourteen years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like literally nothing. Um, <laughs> and the fact that he's committing himself to being a Padre is pretty remarkable. Um, so it's it's just kind of like an, an unbelievable sort of scenario for a team that has just caused me so much hardship throughout the years. And and like, I think the Padre fans have just like an underrated hardship. Like people don't ever think of them of having experienced so many, so much heartbreak. 
I can tell you each season has been such a grind as a fan mm. and it just wears on you. And we're, we just don't, we just are not famous for it <laughs> like other cities. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like nobody's making movies about our struggle because they think like, oh, it's a great city. And then yes. Weather's gonna, great. Weather's great. <laughs> but, it, but it has really sucked to be a Padres fan. And I can sit here and tell you it's been a brutal, brutal sports existence. <laughs> Cat agrees. Um so let's get into the news. This this broke right after Eric Longhang and I got done recording last week, but um, as part of Major League Baseball's kind of hostile takeover of the minor leagues that happened last year, uh, it allows them to use the minor leagues as a laboratory for rule changes, and they uh, announce what they're going to do at every level this year. There are six rule changes. Some of them matter. Some of them don't. Um, you know, I don't. I don't really care about bases being bigger, and if, if you do, I, I think you need more interesting things in your life. But uh, you know, one thing that happened is is this defensive positioning piece, um, where teams will be required to position four players in the infield, uh, and every player must have both of their feet in front of the outer boundary of the infield dirt. So they have to be in the dirt, so you can't call uh, the dude in a shift playing that kind of short right softball position an infielder. Uh, and they also are require are, are thinking about in the second half um, requiring that you know you have to go two and two, so two players have to be on each side of second base. Um, looking at the data, I was kind of surprised. I thought this was my distraction was this is dumb, and basically you're gonna when you're gonna have guys just selling out for power because they can. They don't need to worry about the shift anymore. But in reality, there's actually kind of more contact uh, when there's no, when there is no shift, and then. Um, I think if their goal is to kind of have more balls and you know more balls in play, I think it it could help there. But at the same time, I, it worries. I don't like stifling innovation. I don't like saying you can't do this. And I know the NBA doesn't allow zone defenses and things like that. But what are your thoughts on this? I, I honestly like I you know I covered baseball for a long time. I mean, listen, I'm not like ancient, but I did cover it for for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I I I like. I like experimenting. I mean, I, honestly, I'm someone who really loves to see different things. And, you know, I, they're not locking themselves to any of these rules. They're seeing like, let's see how it plays out. And I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think it's worth a try. I mean, listen, I, whatever results out of this, if we end up having like a, a ban on shifts, if we end up having where like, you know, the strike zone, obviously, like the robot strike zone. What we've seen in the game is that the game just continues to innovate. So you will have teams that will figure out the next thing, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like you will find the next sort of level of player who is undervalued and then will be then will be overvalued. You know, it's like it's like I think it's healthy to sort of challenge the norms of the game. Um because I do think there is a, a tendency to get a little stale. Um, yeah, and, so, I know, and, and there's a tendency, especially in baseball more than any other sport, to kind of over-romanticize the past. Exactly. And I think if you look at it, I mean, I think nobody can sit here and say that some of the things that have happened in the last 20 years haven't changed the way we've sort of seen player development or the way that teams have, have sought to, to acquire players it's changed all of that. Like, you know, the focus, you know, if you want, ever you want to call the Moneyball era, it did cause a change. Yeah. Um, 
whatever you want to think of it. And I'm not even casting judgment on any of it in any way. It did change the game. And I think it's what we've seen is that different innovations have changed the game. And, and that's and the times that it's happened, I think it's been for the better. I mean, you know, anytime that there's been this sort of shift, it, it's just caused people to have to look to see what is undervalued. And I think as we move on in the sport and as we see players sort of, you know, better, better, better physical physique, guys throwing a hundred, you know, so many guys throwing a hundred, you sort of need to shake things up. I do agree that I think there just needs to be some kind of experimentation in the game, constantly looking to see in what ways it can be better and it can be more interesting. I mean, do you do you think part of that is just how we've turned it's turned into such a power game on both sides, both offensively I, and pitching? That was just like the lack of action is something that they need to try to do these that these experiments need to try to address. I think so. I mean, I think listen, I think we may flip back to a, a point where a certain type of guys that got discarded in the two thousands are now becoming more valuable, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think mm-hmm. it's good. It's good to shake things up. Um, I think, like you said, I think baseball is a sport that always gets caught up in its past too much. And I don't think you can sit here and say that the game is anywhere near the same, that the athletes are anywhere near the same that they were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, much less talking about like, you know, 1920s. Um, so it's like as the athletes evolve themselves, as the front offices evolve, you kind of need to challenge the norms. And, and again, these are experiments in the minors. Um, these are not things that they're implementing right away. And I think to sort of like shun these things without seeing how they play out, let's just see how they play out. Um, yeah. And if- I, I, when things like this come out, I think the initial reaction, and I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone is like, oh, MLB is trying to do something. This must be wrong. Um, and there's a good track record to, to, to lead to that way of thinking. I don't think any of this is that bad. I, I think this is all well thought out. I love the pickoff rule. And you know, I had a friend in the game who always thought the pickoff rule should be in existence. And But I always would ask him, like, well, what happens after three pickoff rules? You can't throw anymore? And he would just kind of shrug his shoulders. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Then you just run to second. But now that they've made that third throw kind of a balker or, or rather an outer balk thing, I think that helps. And we'll see more stolen bases and stolen bases are all but gone from the game and stolen bases are cool as hell. I agree. I mean, it just opens the the world up to a different kind of baseball player. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like it's, it's going to like, I think this thought that it's going to change the game, that it's, that that's, that, that is some kind of tragedy. I don't buy into that. <laughs> it's okay. Change is okay. Like there's nothing wrong with the game sort of like, looking to find ways in which it can be different. Um, you know, you're trying to find, you know, new fans, new new people who want to play the game. You want to see if you can diversify the game as much as possible. Let's do it. Let's try it. I mean, I, I think to, to, to just blanket say, I don't even want this tried in the minor leagues, I don't understand that attitude. I think it's like... Let's see what happens if it's a disaster in the minors and then they still try to implement it in the majors. I think there's a decent argument there, but I think to say we don't even want to try this, I don't understand that. Yeah, and this is all going to give Major League Baseball bullet points that they, if they want to fight for it in the big leagues, it'll come up in the upcoming Superfund CBA talk at the end of the year. 
Yeah, um, I mean, does it does it make me want to watch a double A season because there's these weird things? Yes, I would love <laughs> to see. I kind of would like tune in to a random double A game where like guys can't throw more than twice to the first base, and you know, like, do I want to watch a game in the low A's where they there's like a robot umps? Yes. I would watch this <laughs> and it's like it opens up a new world that's super interesting to me. And uh, you know MLB has been obsessed most of the rule changes have been about um game length of late. Um some with with tiny successes and some with no success at all. The three batter rule has had no effect on game length and so it should be eliminated. But the one thing that actually would have an effect on game length is a pitch clock. Um and they are going to experiment with that at one level. I was watching a spring training game the other day. Uh, Brad Hand came in the game. And in between every pitch, like he'd throw a pitch, catcher would throw it back, and he'd walk off the mound and, and you know do the ball rubbing and do a little circle and then go out to the mound. And I actually kind of walked into my office and grabbed my stopwatch hmm. uh, and, and then went back and, and to start you know, timing it on uh, non-ball in plays, you know, obviously a foul ball is always going to create a, a, you know, a separate issue and things like that, but just like a pitch that's, that's either, uh, taken or swung and missed. So just pitch hits the catcher's mitt goes back. Right. And it was on average more than 40 seconds and completely unnecessary. And, you know, for all these things that they've done that have like cut 90 seconds off of game average or, or a minute off, I think you could get and I'm totally pulling this number out of my ass. I think you get 10 plus minutes out of a game at this point by by just making them throw the damn ball. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think the one thing that I would worry about is like you have a pitcher, like especially like, you know, in double A, like a minor league pitcher, you're like, you know, you're trying to get a sequence with your, with your catcher and you're like, oh my God, I have three seconds to throw a pitch. <laughs> he throws a pitch and he blows out his arm because his mechanics are all out of whack. I think that's the one thing I would worry about. Um, and so I think like that's my one caveat to some of these rules. Like anything that makes the player kind of like have to rush to what they're doing and messes with sort of like their routine. And if it has a very small effect on game time, then that to me is, you know, that is what I'm most skeptical about. Um, but again, I mean, I don't know how often we're going to get in scenarios where, you know, you have a pitcher completely junking their mechanics because they have two seconds to throw the ball. I mean, I think that's a rare occasion, but that is the one thing that gives me pause. <laughs> um, the other news story that kind of caught my eye was just that it, it's March 18th, uh, or that's when we're recording this, and opening day is in, is in roughly two weeks. Um, we have the same story we have every spring about extensions and players all saying the same things that they do every spring about extensions, which is if I'm going to sign an extension, I'm going to do it before the season starts. Once the season starts, I'm focusing on baseball and kind of setting this somewhat arbitrary deadline. Um, the two big names doing it in the last week were Francisco Lindor and Carlos Correa, uh, who are both going to be, you know, two premium shortstops on the market next year. If they don't sign extensions, um, we talk, we'll talk about some of these kind of players with, with Russ Dorsey. We talk about the Cubs, just you know, guys who are really good players coming off of disappointing 2020 campaigns. And that kind of complicates the extension talk, but like time is running out and, and you are in New York. Um, obviously acquiring Francisco Lindor, I'm sure it was a, a great boon to, to the Mets 
and 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 you know generate a lot of attention and and and, and excitement as it should have. He's a wonderful player, but it kind of feels, you know, almost a month into spring training, it feels like the it felt when they got him, they were just going to get it done and extend him. And right now, it feels like chances are he's going to be a free agent. This is going to be a one year thing. Do you agree with that? I mean, it's such a, it's such a, I mean, I'm just trying to put myself in, in sort of their shoes and sort of think about it in their, from their point of view. I mean, it is such a fascinating time to be going into a free agent year um, as a big time player. I mean, you have a looming CBA thing. You have an economy that's sort of wrecked by a pandemic. Um, So you have all these factors at play that, will and may affect i mean there's so much unknown maybe more unknown than than there has been in a really long time for for a, sure for a for a very agent so i can only imagine that the type of numbers that they're getting are just really disappointing in terms of an extension talk i'm sure and and so i mean if you're a lindor you're 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 a different kind of player you play a premium position uh, so i think you can gamble on yourself a little bit, and I think you, you can. It's still it's it's, it's it's interesting. Just think that those guys are all looking in the mirror, but also looking at each other. And you think about you know Lindor, Correa, Seager, Story. It's going to be flush with pretty incredible shortstops. With franchises that you know, in some cases, are set at the position too. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so it's like this musical chairs thing is. It's going to be interesting. But again, you know, like, I guess if you're a Lindor and you're like, listen, if the Padres can sign Tatis to a 14-year extension, there's money to be had somewhere. No question. Uh, so I think, like, that sort of changes the dynamic as well. You know, I think for all of the teams talking about that the economy is is playing a huge sort of factor into this, you do have the teams that have, have splashed out some money. Um and you know which which sort of it, it's you know it sort of suggests that there is money to be had. There is um, money to be had. Let, I mean, if if you're a let's Lindor, if you're a Lindor and you're a Seager, there's going to be money. I mean, I think you know where Correa fits is a really fascinating discussion. Um, yeah, and I think guys like <clears throat> even for Lindor a little bit who didn't have a great year, but like you know Correa, um, you know Javi Baez, who we'll talk with, with Russ about later. Like those are guys who need to have big years. They need to kind of prove that they are what you've always thought they are. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I just think uh, Correa in particular is a fascinating case. I mean, I think, you know, he's such a young guy. He, you know, he had such a great sort of beginning to his career, you know, and he, you know, he sort of fell off a little bit in terms of the conversation about the best at, at the game, in the game at his position, but I mean, he's still so young mm-hmm. that you that you still bank on him being a star player. I mean, but it, it's interesting the way that the market is shaped around shortstops and how, you know, you have so many guys now that you consider to be, you know, so good. I mean, I you know, you obviously talk about the position and, and it being a position of scarcity. Usually it's it's really not necessarily that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you have that you sort of got into an era where where the position is a little bit more full than it has been usually. I mean, obviously, you had that stretch in the 2000s where you had the Tejadas, the Nomars, the Jeters, you know, all like the A-Rods where it was, you know, that it became flush with shortstops. But 
um, you know, so you're sort of in that era again where you have a lot of really good shortstops and you have guys that are top prospects who are shortstops, you know, so it's it's sort of like the position scarcity is is less so um, at this point. So I think it'll be interesting to see how some of this musical chairs plays out with with a lot of these guys. But I mean, I'm like I said, in particular, I really am fascinated to see how Korea fits into this. Yeah, I mean, there's that's it's been six years now. There, there's always been an MVP season in him, you know. Exactly. And, and can he yeah. stay healthy for one and, and deliver it? And it's obviously it's a platform year. Um, people talk about that a lot, and studies show that some guys thrive and some guys don't. Um, but we'll we'll see on that. Um, last week, Eric and I talked about the Texas Rangers' decision to fill their stadium for one day for some godforsaken reason. And uh, as we reach this week, every team in baseball now has a plan. Um, every team in baseball is going to have some level of fans in the stands. And, and today's news uh, took place in, in, in your town. And you know, New York announced 20% full, but also had added the, the little piece about how fans need to either have uh, proof of vaccination or uh, proof of a negative test. Uh, is this something that every team should be doing? I mean, honestly, like to use a baseball term, it's a little eyewash. Um, oh, okay. I, I mean, listen, if you have a vaccination, I think you're in really good shape. <laughs> you know, regardless of what you, what activities you want to do, if you're fully vaccinated. Is that true? I'm going to go on a tangent here for a second. Okay, I, sure. I, 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 you, again, let's repeat. You're the Metro editor for the New York Times and, and you were the lead on, on COVID in New York City. You are not a medical professional. Let's make sure everyone knows that. Um, so I, I don't have a vaccination yet. Um, my, but recently, Illinois, where I live, announced that starting on April 12th, they're going to make vaccinations open to anyone, any adult, right? So I'm getting jabbed soon, right? And I, and I can't wait. And yet I still don't feel like I have any clarity on what I can and can't do after I get vaccinated. Because it sounds like I still should wear a mask. And I'm happy to wear a mask if it makes other people safer. No problem there. But like, can I go to, should I feel good going to a restaurant? Like, is that okay? Like, I, 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 there just seems to be no clarity on what, what it changes for selfishly, completely selfishly. What changes for me personally, once I get my two sticks? I mean, if you get the Johnson and Johnson one shot, you're, you're in really good shape too. So I just want to make sure. Okay. (laughs) So you got to, thank you, Dr. Fauci. So regardless of which vaccine you get. Um, no, I mean, if you get vaccinated and you become fully vaccinated, um, whether it's a one shot or a two shot vaccine, like, can I go lick street signs? Like, where are we? You're, you're, yeah, your, your options really do open up. Um, it offers you very good protection against just getting infected in general, Mm -hmm. but it offers almost, almost a hundred percent protection from severe illness. So listen, if you get if you're one of the persons who gets fully vaccinated and, you know, there's a 90% chance you won't get infected and you get infected, you're most likely still only going to get a minor. Your outcomes are still much Exactly. Better. Your outcomes are very good. And this is even talking about the variants. The variants are more infectious. And in some cases, they've been found to... Um, be more sort of like go go against the vaccines, but the vaccines have still proven to be effective against severe illness. So 
is there a gamble in, in doing things? Yes, in the sense that you could still get infected. Is like, are are you avoiding a very negative outcome at this point if you're fully vaccinated? That's most likely yes. Like, it's almost a hundred percent yes. So, if you're fully vaccinated. I would feel safe about doing a lot of different things. Does it mean that you can't infect other people? I think the studies are not conclusive on that. So you should definitely still wear a mask. But yeah. I think for your own self-being, I think you're going to be okay. Um, there so if is you're a- fully vaccinated and you want to head to City Field and go see the Mets, you shouldn't think twice about it. I think you'll be okay. Yeah, I think okay. it's, a, it's a safe activity. You're doing it outside. It's not something that's in, in a very tight environment. At this point, they're allowing 20% of fans, so you can spread out. It, it's a relatively fairly safe activity at this point. Um, I think one of the things that sort of is, is becoming a little bit difficult to gauge is we've gotten to a moment in the pandemic where the numbers and the and the and the the models are all really to be frank with you a little confusing so you know we have for example just using new york because this is exact specifically what we're talking about you have in new york city you have case count you have hospitalizations and you have deaths all trending down and yet there is a, still a lot of caution because of the unknown. So the variants are an unknown in the way that they can spread and be more contagious to a population that has not yet been vaccinated. So, you know, even the strides that we have made in the vaccination effort, we still don't have a majority of New Yorkers vaccinated. So right, right. there's still a very vulnerable population here. So, so I think that that is what is giving a lot of the public health experts pause about anything that reopening brings is that we have a lot of unknown right now. And as we found out with this pandemic, the unknown is everything. I mean, it's it's dictated so much of what has happened because as much as we have tried to predict, it, it sort of has really been something that's been really difficult to predict. Um, and so we've sort of reached this point where it is confusing. Like you said, I mean, you don't know, like you yourself said, you don't know whether being fully vaccinated allows you to do more things. You know, I think if you've sort of seen some of the CDC guidelines, they're saying like, hey, if you and your friends have gotten vaccinated, it's okay to have some indoor gatherings. Mm-hmm. And I think it's and I think it's fair to for people to begin to think in those terms, you know, that it's that the, we have made advancements, that the vaccinations are working. I don't think it's I don't think it's a good environment to create where you're basically telling everyone you can get vaccinated, but everything's still the same, you know, because <laughs> it's I think people have an exhaustion and I think you're dealing with human beings. And I don't think human beings sort of want to constantly hear the negative. Um, you, you talked about when we when we we start just when we just kind of riffed on the Padres there to start. You talked about kind of how you were not necessarily comfortable with them even playing at all last year. Um, Do you have any discomfort at the general plan for fans in baseball, which starts in two weeks? I mean, I certainly don't think it's a good idea to pack a stadium full of fans. I mean, I don't... No, I understand that, but I I mean, does like does the 20% make sense? Like, does that make you... Are you comfortable with that? Or do you go, even that's just kind of being greedy? Or or like, where do you... Where's the line for you? I think it's okay. To be okay. honest, I yeah, think, this is great. I was what I want to know. 
I think it's okay. I mean, I listen, if you're bringing in, you know, thousands of people, even if it's not capacity, is there is there somewhat of a risk? Yes. And I think, you know, when we start to look at how we how life will move on in in a post pandemic environment, will there be some risk involved in anything that we do? I think I think it's realistic to think that there will be. I don't think we're going to I don't think we're looking at a future where you're going to be having no risk ever whatsoever. So it's it's a matter you think of COVID, COVID's with us forever on some level. On some level, yeah. I mean, listen, at some point it's going to become like the flu, you know? It's mm-hmm. it's like there'll be enough things, you'll be enough people who have gotten vaccinated and enough people who have gotten it. Um, but it will continue to mutate. It'll continue to sort of be a threat. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be the same threat that it was in April 2020. It doesn't mean I'm not going to leave my fucking house for it. Yes, year. it means I think it's fair and I think it's it's safe and I think it's healthy for people to begin to think of a normal life again. Um, and I think when you when you talk about a 20% gathering at a stadium that's outside, that is limited risk it's less risk than if you're like crowding inside a bar pre-vaccine that is certainly a more dangerous activity um but i think we've all found out that being outside mitigates the danger you know you know there were fans at the world series last year Mm -hmm. and you didn't hear about them being like super spreader super events. Spreader event. like, yeah. Exactly. You know, as long as you are responsible in the way that you do it, as long as you try to minimize the moments in which people are crowded together and actually hopefully not even have those types of moments, I think there is an okay to gradually bringing back fans. So I'm asking her a selfish question. I get my two shots or my one. I haven't been in a bar for over a year. I love bars. I think bars are one of mankind's greatest inventions. I think sitting with a friend or a loved one at a bar and having drinks and talking is one of the best things anyone can do with their time. Am I, am I cool to go in a bar? In a closed bar? Kevin, I think you're going to be in okay shape if you're fully vaccinated for no, I'm yourself. Excited. No, I'm excited. I mean, I think it's, I, I just don't think you can tell people like, oh, you know, go get the vaccine. Everyone needs to get the vaccine. But yet it means that life doesn't change in any way. I don't think you can say that. I mean, right. the vaccine is there so that we begin to have some normalcy again. Um, am I telling you that that you will not get COVID? I'm no. Not, no. Because it's not 100%, but it, right. you are almost certainly not going to get a severe outcome if you are fully vaccinated at this point. And that's what the, that's, that is what the studies have shown. Um, believe me, I ache to be in a bar again. Oh, my God. It kills me. To sit. Like, you know, I, the other day I was walking um, in my neighborhood and there were people in a bar. Like, the weather was nice. Yeah. There were people, like, there were people sitting at tables, you know, within their own... It's like pods at the bar. And I walked by and I'm like, holy shit. Like, like it's going to be possible to be in a bar again. And it's like, I can't tell you how happy it made me to think in those terms again. Um, 
because I very much miss bars. Yes. Beyond anything else. <laughs> exactly. I agree. <laughs> and it's not like, listen, like I, I, the thought of sitting with a friend at a bar is just the most amazing so thought to wonderful. me. So wonderful. Yes, wonderful. And, 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 I'm, and I'm not like even one of those people that like, oh my God, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Like, I'm not even going to be the type of person that's going to go to a bar now and like will want to talk to every stranger at the bar. It's like, no, no, no don't talk to me. Like, but I'm happy that you're here near me, <laughs> but just don't <laughs> talk to me. But I just want to have that environment again. And I think it's okay to start to think in those terms. We're not there yet where life is back to normal, but we are like months away. I mean, I think it is realistic to think, listen, vaccine supply is going to significantly ramp up by the beginning of April. We're going to see a lot of the vaccine beginning in April. So like it should not, you're not going to have issues getting an appointment like in a month, in a month and a half. Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be a lot of the vaccine. You're, I think we're going to be in an environment by May or June where you're going to have to start convincing people to get it, the ones who have not gotten it. Right. Um, like you're like basically telling people you need to be a team player and get the vaccine. <laughs> yeah, that's going to um, be tough. And, we're not that far from that yet. So it's okay to start to think and, and that life is going to be okay and that there will be some normalcy again. We're like, we've all been through a year of this. And I think it's okay to start in your mind to visualize what it's going to be like in a post COVID environment. So everybody visualize a positive future. While you listen to a song from Anna Fox Rachinsky, we'll be back with Russ Dorsey, the Cubs beat writer of the Chicago Sun-Times, and then we'll do some listener email, talk about Jorge's life, and all their things. So stick around. Special guest time. Our special guest was became the youngest beat writer in Chicago when he was named the Cubs beat writer last summer. He's with the Chicago Sun Times and does an outstanding job of that, and also complaining about other Chicago sports. <laughs> He's Russell Dorsey. Russell, how are you, man? I'm doing well. I can't help it when teams in our fine city don't hold themselves accountable. Sometimes you just got to let them know. I think it's important to know that, that, that now that, that Andy Dalton has signed with the Bears, I can now name one Chicago Bear. So I think it's an important step forward for me. 
Yeah, if I if I was a Chicago Bear currently, I'd be on the phone with my agent. Like, yeah, let's start looking at some other places. So this is your first spring training as a beat writer, and obviously it's a weird one. Um, like, what has the vibe been as a reporter at trying to to do the beat job in Mesa when you have kind of the all the limits that are there because of the pandemic? Um, well, I guess the last 12 months have been pretty crazy for all of us, but especially us on the beat because we have a, a unique job to do. And it's one where access is very vital to us doing the job well. And so to have to do that over Zooms, uh, without clubhouse access and without being able to see some of the people that you see and talk with on a regular basis, it makes the job difficult. Obviously, we like a lot of areas of life we managed, right? I wouldn't say that it was, oh, we did so amazing at our job. We, we managed. But getting back to some type of normal for us covering spring training, I've been here since the beginning and being able to meet Anthony Rizzo in person. Like I talked to him the other day and I'm like, hey, I'm Russ. I've been asking you questions for a year and you know me already, but it's nice to meet you in person. And it's fun and those guys like enjoyed that and they enjoy being able to do one-on-ones again and they enjoy being able to see those of us who are here on the ground in person it's you know the ones of those of us who who ask them questions regularly anyway but it's nice to even just have that interaction because i feel like behind a, a laptop behind a camera it's just not the same like i think that's the one thing that people don't necessarily understand about our job is that human interaction is so important to, you know, the back and forth of the reporter, player, reporter, manager, reporter, front office person relationship. And and every team has their own, can make their own rules here. So the Cubs are allowing one-on-ones. Yeah. So we probably have the best access in baseball from what I hear. Like there are a lot of teams that were just like, Hey, yeah, it's on zoom. and, And that's that. But you know, the Cubs have been great working with us, working with the beat and, and trying to figure out what's a safe, but also um, gives the people who, you know, whose publications decided to pay the money to come down here and cover the team on site, give us some advantages to being here. And, and I think they've done a really great job of that, um, being able to have, you know, one on one socially distanced, but where I'm right in front of Anthony Rizzo and we can talk and we can have a conversation and it's been it's been awesome. So I really appreciate them for working through that with us um, late in the offseason and, and early here in camp. So it's been that's been really nice to be able to to get back what to are that. There, what are the rules for these one on ones? Is do you have to be like outside? Is it is there like a distance? You got to guys got to keep. Yeah. Up yeah so each it, other? it's not it's not like they're in the clubhouse. Like we're out on I mean, we're the way the Cubs complex in Mesa is set up. There's this patio area. So we can sit outside on the, they're, they're like picnic tables. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I, so we sit on one side and player sits on the other. And we have like these group, like quote unquote scrums, where it's just me and Sada Sharma and Gordon Whitmire and Tony Andraki from Marquee. And we just have our normal conversation with a player. And it's great. And, and it gives us an opportunity to do that. And then we have our allotted time with, with a player for our one-on-one. So that's what we've been doing this spring. And it's been really successful. And, you know, the players 
have enjoyed that, enjoyed that interaction with us again. And we've enjoyed that from our perspective where we can, you know, separate a little bit. Because I think one of the things last year is you had to get really creative in how you did things because everybody was getting the same access. So mm-hmm. it's all right. How am I going to be different today than Sahadov and Gordon and and Patrick Mooney and Jesse Rogers and Jordan Bastion and all these guys. And so now being able to get back into one-on-ones, we can kind of go back to doing our own thing and, you know, separating a little bit. Russell, this, this is Jorge. I'm curious, I'm curious how, like, you know, we've, we talk about how the last year, how this pandemic environment has changed, will change moving forward the way that we all work. I mean, do you think that some of this environment has like long-term implications in terms of how you guys do your job? I mean, do you think some of this stuff is going to just creep into the everyday? Like, do you think guys will be more apt to want to do like a Zoom kind of call? Like, you know, if you're home on an off day, like they'll be more open to it now. Do you think there will be long-term changes to this? Me personally, I don't. And I think one of the reasons for that is uh, the BBWA is is a really strong um, thing and being able to have direct communication with the league and with teams. There was a promise made last year, like, Hey, this is, uh, this is not permanent. This is only so that, you know, we can keep people safe. But I I think with the conversations that the BBWA has with, you know, the league getting back to normal is something that everybody wants, you know, not only the league, but, but us. And for me personally, I know from talking to players, they don't want to continue to do zooms. Like, they don't enjoy that part of this. Like I, everybody knows it's to keep us safe and it's what we had to do, but they enjoy being able to have conversations with us, you know, in person. And they enjoy being able to have those relationships with us, even though sometimes, you know, they don't always enjoy what we write or, or whatever. But I think a big part of this job is, is that relationship aspect. So I think in some areas of life and society, it's like, oh, this is a, a way more efficient way to do things. And, hey, we can have a meeting outside and we don't necessarily have to, you know, do we need a, an office anymore if people are able to do things at home? I think in some areas of life that that those conversations will be had. But I think as far as beat reporting, especially in baseball, I do think being able to go back to in-person interaction is something that's that's going to return relatively quickly here. How weird do you think it's going to be having been part of some of those scrums, like being part of one of those group sessions when it gets back to normal, where you're sticking your arm out with your tape recorder? Yeah, I'm, like, just, I'm picturing the just, Boris scrum in the winter meetings yeah. every year, with like 200 people around. I mean, them. having been part of some of those really, really tight within 30 quarters kind of sessions, I mean, is, do you think it's going to be weird? I. I'm going to tell you guys this right now. Like, I didn't enjoy scrums when there wasn't a pandemic. <laughs> so I, I know that I'm not going to necessarily enjoy them when we get back. I think um, everybody doesn't understand the idea of personal space. <laughs> That's something I've learned over the years. If you see players now, like, they'll put their chair in front of them as they're talking to give them, like, a buffer between, you right. know, the reporters and, you know, the you know, the the TV guys with the cameras and all that, you get hit in the head with a camera enough times, you're going to be tired of that. And so somebody <laughs> who has, like, I, I'm 
not looking forward to uh, returning to those types of scrums here in the future. I mean, I'm just imagining a scenario like you're in one of those and someone coughs. Yeah, <laughs> and everybody turns their head like, yeah, everyone, you should probably Everyone's going to stop recording. The, whatever, whoever's at your interview is just going to stop talking. It's just going to be so Absolutely. awkward those first few moments. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's been, uh, let's talk about the team for a second. I, it's mm-hmm. been... Uh, a bit of a rough off season for the Cubs. A lot of big names are gone. Um, you know, the, the, no one wants to use the word rebuild, but the, they're at least kind of retooling. How are the Cubs handling this? Like, what is their message after this off season going into 2021? Well, I think it was a it was a weird off season for the Cubs because after the trade of you Darvish, after the non tender of Kyle Schwarber and Albert Almora Jr., it the feeling was all right. This is this is the end. Theo Epstein had just you know resigned as as team president. Jed Hoyer took over, and we had kept we had been hearing you know this phrase year of transition all off season, and the, there was uh, a mandate from ownership to cut salary uh, that was reported by several outlets in the city, nationally, mine included, um, and that was that was true. Like the the team had to cut payroll, uh, and. From a baseball standpoint, you can kind of understand why. Like they were in the top three of payroll each of the last five seasons, and the results did not resemble a team that should be spending that much money. You know, they had gotten bounced by the Marlins last season, and they missed the playoffs the year before after paying the uh, the uh, the the tax, the yeah yeah competitive balance tax. I don't know why I can't find words today. Um, so. You look at it from a baseball perspective and you're just like, okay, I can see why they would have to make these moves. But you look at a team like the Dodgers, who the Cubs feel that they resemble. They feel like they are a major market team with major market pockets. But you look at it from a fan perspective and you say, well, wait a minute. If, if we're going to be this major market team and we're going to have, you know, all this money, regardless of what happened in the pandemic, yes, you're going to not make as much money as you did before, but you have Gallagher way and you have the rooftops and you have all this money from at least the outside perspective coming in. And then when a tough time hits now up, oh, we got to trade players. It, it's hard for, you know, to, to, for a fan to rationalize that when they were told, Hey, the money that we're using to, expand ballpark infrastructure and to build Gallagher way and to do all these fancy things around Wrigley field, that money doesn't affect the money on the field. That's what they told fans. And the reality was, is that wasn't the case. Right. And right. so the, it, it's, that is kind of trickled into the on-field product. And then later in the off season, up, oh, we found some money. And so here's Jack Peterson and here's Jake Arietta back with, for union. Here's Trevor Williams and here's Brandon Workman in the bullpen. And so they made some later additions where it's like, okay, this is not necessarily a team that's looking to rebuild. They've changed some things up. They've cut a little bit of salary, but now they're in a position where they can actually compete for the National League Central now. Like I think when you line them up with the other teams in, in the NL Central, they could still win this division. So it, it's they're kind of in a weird spot where if they get off to a, a good start here in 2021, it's like, okay, they, they could compete for this thing. But if they don't, that's when you start saying, okay, 
when does Bryant get moved? Uh, do they move a guy like Craig Kimbrell, who's on the last year of his deal? And they have all these different guys who are in walk years. They have, I think it's about 15 players on their roster right now are in the last year of their deal. So it's going to be a, an interesting season for a lot of reasons. If they play well, it's interesting because it's one last ride with this this group of guys. If, if they don't, it's all right. Who's leaving at the trade deadline? And I, I guess the follow up is just to go like that's that's kind of what the, what management is saying. As someone who lives in Illinois and lived in Chicago for twenty years, like Cubs fans are a uh, are a unique group, a unique fan set. Like how have they you deal with them a lot on Twitter? Um, like how have they been dealing with this? And and have you know did some did those late moves? Even though you know they're not giant headlines, but just doing something did that do anything to kind of mitigate how they feel. Yeah, it was it was kind of a where the record scratches because <laughs> people were preparing for all right, goodbye Chris Bryant, maybe goodbye Javi Baez, goodbye Anthony Rizzo, God forbid for a lot of fans. And they were prepared for this real rebuild. And it didn't happen. And not only did it not happen, we're bringing Jake Arietta back and fans were like, "Oh man, um that's kind of cool, I guess. And Trevor Williams comes over from the Pirates. And, you know, we're Jock Peterson was a that's a that's like a real dude. That's not some, you know, waiver claim. And so I think fans were kind of surprised that they had been preparing themselves all winter for the end. And now it's not the end. So I think fans are cautiously optimistic, like they're not diving in the deep end of the Cubs Kool-Aid. They're not doing that at all. But they're trying to at least enjoy this core group of players, these guys that, you know, help their team break a 108-year curse or whatever and, and win a World Series in 2016. They want to enjoy that, but at the same time, they're mindful of the fact that this thing could flip at any moment. And uh, Jorge and I talked in an earlier segment about how the Yankees and Mets have decided how they're going to deal with fans. What's what's the plan in Wrigley Field for having fans in the stands? So they'll start the season with 20% capacity at Wrigley. And with, you know, the way the rollout is happening of the vaccine, and it's possible by the, the end of the season that could be a much higher percentage. I was told that if there was a case of COVID traced back to Wrigley Field, that percentage would go to zero. So they're, the city of Chicago, the Cubs are being very mindful about how they do this. Um, and they've adjusted some different things at the ballpark, whether it's the way people come in and overflow and having specific sections for people in the ballpark. So they're they're taking it really seriously. And while they want fans back in the ballpark and while the city of Chicago wants fans back at stadiums, they are they're not taking this thing for granted like they're not going to the finish line like they know it's there's still a long way to go before we put this thing behind us and so that's how it's going to start and i guess we'll just see in the the weeks to come how effective they are at making sure people are safe at the ballpark and if though that capacity increases as the months go it's i mean it's pretty fascinating when you think about i mean it's it's going to be so hard to really peg a case to a to like having attended a Cubs game, like the, the contact tracing is just, isn't that good. Um, so it's just gonna be interesting to see how, how teams individually react to, um, so if, you know, if there's a rise in numbers, it's just really hard to, 
to to sort of like say that a person got covid from going to a cubs game it just, it's just it's just we just don't have that level of sophistication so it's just really going to be a gut check for a lot of these teams i think no you're right Jorge. and i think you know the cubs have been working on this plan to bring people back to the ballpark since last summer right they did they weren't sure if you know they they were hoping that they'd be able to bring people back to ballparks before last season ended and uh they didn't so they've been working with epidemiologists um, in Chicago, Dr. Robert Citrenberg, on this plan. And, you know, the first thing I asked them was like, hey, are we getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, doctor? Because I know people are excited for baseball and people are excited to have a full season and people are excited that we're, we can see the, the light at the end of the tunnel of, of the pandemic. But like, are we getting ahead of ourselves with, you know, that day the Rangers announced that they were going to have 100% capacity after right, right. lifting their mask mandate. And it's like, well, is that necessarily, the, are we doing the right thing here? And his answer was, look, the pandemic's still in control. Like, yes, we're getting close, but we're not there yet. And so, you know, individual teams and the league and individual cities have to be really mindful about how they're progressing as the summer goes. And, you know, they're lifting different restrictions you know, as we as we move forward, have they given any any clarity on like the seating areas? Are the bleachers going to be twenty percent? So they haven't given a specific about how. That seems that seems like it could be a mistake. Yeah, no, no. I, I think <laughs> I think the eighty two because it's going to be eighty two hundred. So the eighty two hundred, from what I believe right now, is going to be lower bowl seating, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe even into the upper upper deck. And then the rooftops will be at 50% capacity since they fall under the city's restaurant and bar guidelines. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree with you. I, I don't know necessarily if, if the bleachers fall into that category, but they could. Like I, I don't know that for certain. But um, yeah, that's that's they're going to do their best to spread people around the ballpark. And so they're going to have this, this... The way they have it set up is they're going to have... You're going to be in a section when when you walk into the ballpark. So your section of 500, 600 people will have a specific set of bathrooms, restaurants, shops in the ballpark. So only your section gets to go to those shops, restaurant or restaurant, retail restrooms. And so they hope doing that keeps people from interacting with the other 8,200 people that are in the ballpark. So if, if somebody does have a case or there's somebody who um is covid positive and you're not you don't have people crossing paths and and to keep you know not only the people but the people the staff that are that it's working in the ballpark safe russell what what are the do you know whether they the players have been giving instructions in terms of how to interact with fans? I mean, like you would think that you would not want Anthony Rizzo taking photos and hugging fans, and yeah. like, or even like diving into diving into the pit for a foul ball. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, exactly. I, that that's that's right. I, I don't. I think the way that the Cubs are going to have their seating is you're not going to be able to, and this is the way they did it last year. You're not going to be able to sit, you know, in those first five or six rows. And so that okay. keeps fan and player interactions separate at a place like globe life in Texas. I don't know how they're going to be able to do that at hundred percent capacity. So they're going to have to figure out something on their own, but I know for the Cubs, that's how they're going to, you know, keep that distance um, until players can get vaccinated here in, in the early part of the summer. 
I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be so funny. You're gonna have like if you have like the bleachers and someone, the opposing team hits a home run and they throw the ball back. <laughs> like if you're an outfielder, I'm not touching that ball. It's like, <laughs> I don't want to touch this or yeah. We had to play that one by you. <laughs> uh, you you talked about how you know the National League Central has some good teams, but certainly That's no great team. It does feel kind of wide open. Um, what are you? specifically kind of looking for in April to get better answers about can this team compete in a, in a weak division? Does it all just come down to kind of the big names, the jerseys you see in the stands, Rizzo, Rizzo. Bryant, Javi Baez, like they all had really bad years. Does it all come down to that? You know, just is, is the, can they bounce back as a trio? Is that what everything pivots on right now? Yeah, I think it's that and, and it's their starting pitching. So I'll hit on your first point first. I, I think, those guys had awful, like the worst years of their careers last year. You could say it was for a lot of reasons, but let's just say, all right, pandemic year, shortened season, they had bad years. Got it. This year, they have to perform. There's no, well, we didn't do this. Well, we didn't that. Like, it's not just the team that suffers. Like, there's, like, these guys are fighting for their professional livelihood. Like, a guy like a Chris Bryant, who's come through their system and, had tons of success and been this premier player in the league is going to be a free agent. You know, Javi, same thing. Anthony Rizzo, same thing. Like these guys aren't just playing for, yeah, they're playing for the Cubs and they're, they're trying to, to win a world series, but they're also playing for their professional futures. And so I think that plays a big role in, in their success this year because the pressure's on. And regardless of if they want to talk about it or not, or if they, they think about it or not, like that pressure's there. Uh, and so I think that's a big part of it. Like those guys have to perform for the Cubs to be good. And I think if they do that, that says a lot about where the Cubs will be this season. And I think the other part of that, of what their, um, route to road to success is going to be, is their starting pitching because we all know Kyle Hendricks is great, but you have a lot of guys in that rotation behind them that have question marks. Jake Arietta is a nice story. And if Jake can come in, and pitch well, like that's great, but Jake was hurt and not really all that good. And yeah, yeah. hasn't pitched well for a while, right? And it, it, talking to him, he feels like with if he's healthy, some of the mechanical adjustments they've made this spring and, and during the off season will help him get back to being successful. Not necessarily being the Bob Gibson esque pitcher we saw in 2015 and 16. Like we know that that he, that's not him anymore. But if he can give them a three. Seven five three eight three nine ERA. I think that's a successful season at this point in Jake Arrieta's career. And then Trevor Williams struggled his last couple of years in Pittsburgh after a great twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. Zach Davies is a, has shown he could be a quality starting pitcher in the major leagues. Pitched for the Padres. Pitched for a long time with Milwaukee. So I think with with Hendricks, you know what you have. I think with Davies, you know what you have. But with Arietta Williams, and then whoever wins this fifth starter competition of Alec Mills and Adbert Alzale, you know, those guys are going to play an important part of, of this mix because you can't just ride Kyle Hendricks like you did with you Darvish. Like those guys are not built the same. I think, I think the world of Kyle Hendricks, I think he's one of the best starting pitchers in the national league, but like he needs a running mate. Like he can't just do it by himself. So seeing early who joins Hendricks as that number two will mean a lot to, all right, in September, if, if Wednesday is Kyle Hendricks, who's going to follow him up that next day? Like, is it going to be Arietta? Is it going to be Zach Davies? What are you going to get from Trevor Williams? And then 
whatever you get from that fifth spot, whether it's Alec Mills or Adbert Alzelay, like that's going to be gravy. Russell, what do you? I mean, what are your thoughts on on Baez? I mean, obviously, having a, a sub six hundred OPS last year is is not a good thing, and yeah, I think baseball is better when Javi Baez is doing well and he's an exciting player. I mean, he's a little bit sort of a of, and you wouldn't have thought that, but he's a little bit kind of a mystery going into this season. What do you what do you expect out of him? I think one of the big questions for us in the media, fans, how do you quantify Javi's struggle, right? Because with a guy who is such an energy guy, feeds off the crowd, he's everybody's favorite player, not having fans in the stands really affected him. And for a guy who who loves to hear people chant his name, like I I don't know how many guys that can be a um, a reason for it, but I do feel like he might be the the exception to the rule. And I do think that that affected his play. I also think, yeah, I think the video had something to do with it. But if you look at his numbers throughout his career, like this is a guy who doesn't necessarily have monster first halves and has some really amazing second halves. And in the 60-game season, you scuffle for one week, you know, a quarter of the season's gone, right? So I, I think a lot of guys, not just Javi, guys around the game struggled with that. And talking to some some coaches around the game and, and some front office people around the game, you know, they they understand that and they know that players had to do a, a, a difficult task last year. You know, you leave your family. There's a pandemic where you can't see it. People are getting it. People are, are dying, which is terrible. And but you have to come to the ballpark every day and do a job. And they all know that that was difficult. And so they're hoping that getting back to, you know, a full season where you have a full spring training or almost a full spring training to get ready for the season, gets guys back to their normal, you know, career averages. No, the, the, the Cubs are um, one of the most popular teams in the country. And a lot of that popularity is driven, you know, obviously was driven in the eighties and nineties by the Superstation, but also is driven by uh, a consistent and really good PR campaign. And, you know, they, they, there is a there is a Cubs vibe. There is a Cubs thing that's uniquely Cubs. Cubs fans love it. If things don't start off well, and and you talked about you know Rizzo, Baez, Bryant, all these dudes being potential free agents. Mm-hmm. Um, if things don't go well, do the Cubs have? I don't want to say the guts, but do the Cubs have the wherewithal to maybe do the right baseball thing? Because they're very hard to extend because you don't know what you have because they're coming off these horrible years. Years. Mm-hmm. If, if if the best thing to do baseball-wise would be to put all these three on the market and start a rebuild, would they do it knowing what the PR hit would be? Or would that PR hit play any sort of role in their decision-making? With the Darvish trade that he's willing to do the – the baseball move, right? Like they needed to shed salary. You Darvish was their best starting pitcher and was a week away from winning the Cy Young award. And they traded him right for four young people like to call them lottery tickets. Um, And I think that showed that they're willing to make the difficult move. Do I think letting all those guys, I think if you let all three walk, I think you're making a really big mistake. I think you can trade one at the deadline if things don't go well and you'll be fine. But I do think extending one or two of those guys, I I, I do think 
in a lot of ways, that's the right baseball decision. I think Rizzo for more of the Jose Abreu reason, I think that's the one where you're just like, you knew Jose was going to get signed. Like you knew the White Sox weren't going to let him get away. He's faced their franchise. He's the leader in that clubhouse. And I think Anthony Rizzo represents so much more than the player he is right now that I think they get something done uh, sooner rather than later. I'm not necessarily saying, you know, in the next couple of weeks here, even though they've talked about that, but I think they get something done, even if it's, you know, in the off season um, with Javi and, and KB. I, I really just think it's a matter of the performance is going to say a lot about what the market says, because I think both of those guys could have monster years and they're going to have monster markets. But if they don't, I, I think two things can happen. There could be an opportunity for the Cubs to get value on those guys and still have those guys, you know, play well into their thirties. But you also have to, like you said, have that tough conversation at the deadline and say, Hey, are we the team we want to be right now? No. Does that mean we need to get value for these guys who we love, who helped us win a world series, but we got to move them to help move forward with our future. I think they are savvy enough to make, have those conversations and make that move if they need to. It's fascinating when you look at if, you know, they have the three there to pick from. And if they end up picking the oldest guy who plays the position, that's probably the easiest to replace. It's, it's an, it's an interesting quandary they got. I mean, you know, you have someone who's like a middle infielder or a third baseman, not necessarily the easiest positions to replace. And if they pick the guy that's the oldest and plays the easiest replaceable position, it's going to be an interesting reaction to that. Yeah. I, th- I just think for, um, the, the leadership standpoint, you there's still a lot of value in Anthony Rizzo. I think he's also, when healthy, still one of the best first basemen, not only in the National League, but in but in all of baseball. Defensively, he's still an elite-level defender. So, yeah, I, I get, understand what you're saying. I just think what he brings you still on the field, but also off the field, and as, you know, he was the, the first real part of this core when they when Theo and Jed came in here like they had went and got him from the Padres and he was that first piece of what they hoped would be a World Series championship core and they ended up doing that and so with what that guy brings off the field as well as on the field I would be shocked if they let Anthony Rizzo walk away from from Chicago do you think Chris Bryant wants to stay a Cub I've always gotten the sense that at times he gets kind of sick of the constant trade rumors that he wants to get to free agency and maybe maybe end up somewhere back on on the left coast where he's from uh you know it, do you think he wants to stay there i think he enjoys being a chicago cub i think he enjoys being around these guys that he's uh grown up with you know like think about that like all these guys grew up together and him and javi and kyle schwarber who's no longer here and and anthony rizzo like these guys are they're as, as close as as people think they are and so i do think he enjoys being a chicago cub i think what chris's um i don't even want to say issue but i I think something that's bothered chris over the years has been just the noise right you 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 have a successful like that first three years of chris's career were probably as successful as anybody in the history of the game like he went from being minor league or golden spikes award winner his last year in college first round draft pick 
His first full year in the minors, he wins the the uh, minor league player of the year. His first year in big league ball, he wins rookie of the year. His second year, he wins a World Series and MVP. And his third year in the league, where was arguably better than his MVP year. So, like right. he had crazy amount of success early, and then some injuries hit. He got hit in the face in Colorado. That really affected him. And if, I tell people all the time, like, look how long it took John Carlos Stanton to really bounce back after he got hit in the face by Mike Fires. And, you know, last year he played with a lot of injuries. He played with, you know, a, a small fracture in his wrist and, and some ligament damage in, in his hand. So there's been a lot that's happened to, to Chris Bryant. And to have the, the, the trade rumors on top of that and the the soft label, all of those different things, I, I can understand just from a human being standpoint how that would bother somebody. But I don't. I've never. I never thought it got to a point where he's like, I just hate being a cub. I don't think that's it. Right. I just. He probably just hates the, you know, the noise that comes with being a professional baseball player. And I guess that's understandable. Like you have this much success, and be like, well, what else do people want from me? You know. Russell, we've taken tons of your time. We appreciate you being so generous with your time. We have two last questions. First one would be if you were in Las Vegas. And it was your job to set odds. What would you set the over under on on Cubs wins for the 2021 season here on March 18th, 2021? Uh, I would set it at 81 and a half. And I would take the over. And finally, uh, your your compatriot over there, Sahadev Sharma, yeah. beat writer for The Athletic, a uh, longtime friend of the show. This is simply an open forum for you to talk shit about him right now. <laughs> no man i'm not i'm not gonna do my guys out of like that man i'm not gonna i'm not gonna bash him uh on the pod that's no it's a lot of his good people um we come from similar background at, at uh baseball perspective so no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do my guy like that y'all almost got me though <laughs> how much by the way how much do you miss that like that camaraderie with the other writers i mean in this environment you can't really have i mean that's that's got to be a bummer right i mean i you know some of my best friends i met at, you know covering the game and it, it must be something that's kind of missed right now no nah, you're right over it. I, I think that's uh that's something i've enjoyed about this spring I think getting to one that off season is so weird, especially with no winter meetings. Which like it felt like the first day of school when everybody got here, because I was here by myself for that first week and a half, and then Gordon Winmark shows up, and then oh, that's Patrick Mooney and Jordan Bastion's here, and you know it's you get the band back together, so to speak, and it's it's a lot of fun when you have a lot of people to like, just bouncing ideas off of, and then you add Megan Montemurro into that mix. Uh, and Megan's dope and somebody who's from the city and, and just have another bright baseball mind to talk about baseball with life with. It's it's really cool. And I think we have a I, I really enjoy our beat. I think a, a lot of times people don't or fans don't necessarily understand how lucky they are to have some of the beats they do. And I think, you know, the city of Chicago, especially on the Cubs beat, is really lucky with, you know, the mix of, you know, diversity and, and also just. Uh, knowledgeable people that we have on the Cubs beat right now. Absolutely. Well, Russell, we, we thank you for coming on. Are you, are you staying there the whole time? You do the whole, you run doing the whole route? Yeah, I'll be, I'm going to be here for the next two weeks until the season starts. We need a list of the beat writers who show up on day one and stay there until the season starts. It's a short list. That's a, there's like a dedication prize or something here. <laughs> yeah. I, I, think I mean, that, I just, uh, I just I think hope it's just the biggest, biggest, hopefully the biggest prize is they don't have COVID.
Yeah, I, listen, listen. If that's the prize, I I'm signing up for that one. So, Russ, thanks for coming on. If you want to follow Russell Dorsey on Twitter, he is at Russ underscore Dorsey one. He tweets about the Cubs and complains about Chicago sports. He's entertaining. Russell, thanks for coming on, man. Kevin, Ori, thank you guys. I appreciate it. They're awake in the background. They're awake, you can hunt me down. What a snake in the soft ground. But I don't know if they want me now. But lately I've been going to see them. Back to the podcast. Thanks to Russ Dorsey talking to us about Cub stuff. He was great. I, yeah, he was awesome. I mean, I and I feel like uh, I had a honestly like I was. I'm still super interested in like these interview dynamics in a COVID world, <laughs> right? You know, so like so like talking to him about what it's like to cover. I can, honestly can't imagine covering a team in this environment. Like I so much about like coming up with story ideas is just you know, what you sort of chit chat with someone on the team with. And it's just kind of like, that's absolutely gone. So, and, some te- and some teams, like like Russell said, like they have it good. Like some teams are no one-on-one still. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's crazy to me that covering a team is so hard. Uh, listen, covering a team is so hard in the Twitter era where every nugget becomes a thing. Covering a team in the Twitter era and the COVID era, I can't even imagine the difficulty in trying to be original with something. So I appreciated hearing his insights on that. Yeah, and so uh, you just listened to uh, a song from Anna Fox Rachinsky. This is off of her new album, Cherry, on Don Giovanni Records, which comes out today. If you're listening to this today, it comes out on March 19th. This album is out today. It's called Cherry. It's Anna Fox Rachinsky. Uh, spent the last decade or so with Quilt, kind of a psych rock band, and she's kind of gone pop. Bit of a, uh, my wife and I discussed this, bit of a Fiona Apple sound, bit of a maybe a modern Joni Mitchell sound. Uh, incredibly pleasant for what has been an incredibly pleasant show, even though most of the lyrics are about a breakup she just went through. Um, this album did get delayed a little bit because of the COVID stuff, but it did come out today before the pandemic hit. She was going to play South by Southwest and it just began playing live around New York City. Uh, Anna Fox Ruchinski, the album's called Cherry. It's on Don Giovanni Records, who we always thank for giving us music to play. You should check it out. Ready for listener mail? Absolutely. I've Before I get waiting, to listener mail. I've been, I've been waiting 10 years to answer my <laughs> listener mail. <laughs> Kevin... <laughs> I haven't answered listener mail in a decade, so let's do this. So before we start, if you want to send us an email, uh, send us an email. It's a chinmusic at fangrass.com. And let me tell you, and this was the case before with the with the earlier show, um, we never got enough listener mail. And I think people are, are always a little hesitant to send us an email. Ask us anything. We're here for you. Um, and I asked people to, I said, hey, we're a little short on emails on Twitter. And, and, and the people came through. They have good questions. Um, our first question's from Ricky. He says, Hey, Sarge. 
Got to keep that. Uh, you discussed the news-breaking biz with Eric last week. I was curious if you could provide a window into the, how the sausage gets made there. There are obvious writers with agent connections, but how do they decide what to say when? As well, I'm curious about reports when someone signs. Generally, Passon will have it, and then four minutes later, every other major newsbreaker will say their source confirms. Do they all have the same source? Do the agents send a mass email? <laughs> Finally, what decides what a team will tell a writer and why? It's good to have you back. Uh, it's good to be back, Ricky. Um, most of the news, and, and disagree with me, because you, you did the beat thing. I, I get the sense that most of the news on like free agent signings comes from the agent side and comes from writers relations with agents do you agree with that i wholeheartedly agree with that i mean if it's obviously like a huge boost to an agent <laughs> when right. they can say that my player got signed and got this much um ahead of whoever pl player who plays the same position there is usually very little strategic benefit for a team to leak something i mean certainly like listen i and, and this is just me speaking theoretically i have no insight into this whatsoever um but you know if you're the padres and you have the tatis signing an extension that's probably like one of the things that you're not afraid to share right um you know like that is such that is like something that both the agent and the team are very eager to put out there. Insanely that. positive story all around. Insanely positive story all around. So, you know, that one is is a story that I could see have come from either side. Again, I have zero insight as a journalist. I only know as a consumer. Um, and so, you know, you, you see where it comes from and you think, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it could have come from either side. So there is, there is somewhat mystery when it comes to that one. But there are certainly news items that come out that you know are very strategic and could only have come one, from one particular side, usually the agent side. Mm -hmm. um, again, I mean, uh, you know, obviously, Kevin, you have a different perspective and you sort of have looked at the other side of it it's it's some I, there's really not a ton of positives or i don't know if positives but there's no strategic benefit to a team leaking something um about a certain signing or a trade or trade discussions yeah sometimes you'd throw someone a bone on like yeah. a small deal or, you know or, or hey i'm gonna just give you this first we just gave this guy an nri contract that kind of thing um, sure. Just to give them something to break and then help them out because they helped you out in one way or another. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it, it was I, I. You know, when I first started working for the Astros, obviously I came from the media side and I had all sorts of media people reaching out to me, and it became like a real look. I'm just not going to do this. I'm, you know, I'm not. I appreciate. I'm happy to help you out when I can, but like if you think I'm going to break Astros news for you, that's just not going to be the case. Yeah, I mean it's uh, super difficult. I mean having been a beat writer. Having covered the Orioles for several years, having covered both New York teams at times, it's it's a difficult job, um, and you have scenarios where you, even as a writer in the moment, you realize that you're being used. Yeah, you just, absolutely. And you just have to weigh that against a having something, having something. How legitimate? Like, listen, you can. You can be used, and it's still a very newsworthy and important item to report. Yeah, um, and it's still true. It can all of those things can still be 
true, you know, like that it's a good item, it's true, um, and that you're being used. As long as I think it's important to sort of know that, um, to understand the agendas that exist um, when you're being given an item. Um, obviously there are other times when you're a reporter, when you get an item and you're like, this just doesn't feel right. Um, and then it's up to each individual reporter about how they play that, you know, it's like up to them at that point. I mean, at some point someone is giving you something because they want an offer to their player Mm -hmm. to go up or they want a team to feel that a certain player is now being linked to another team in trade so that they have to up their offer. So you, you really, I mean, it it really is a difficult sort of this game that they play. And I think teams have gotten much better at playing the game. Yeah. Uh, And sometimes shit's just flat out wrong. And I remember like my very first trade deadline was 2013. Um, the Astros were awful and didn't have much to trade away. Kind of the big prize was Bud Norris. And um, we did our work that all teams do well before the trade deadline. You reach out to every team and just say, hey, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Here's what we're looking for. Um, and when we called the Braves, like in May, um, we said, hey, obviously we got by Norris. And they said, yeah, we, we, I don't think that we'd be a real player in that one. Right. Just, you know, which is a perfectly fine thing to say. And we're like, oh, OK, you know, let's know if something changes. And then, I mean, this is my first trade deadline. I'm still kind of navigating where I am. I'm still kind of shocked to be in the room as well. And, um, like, I think I was like, you know, it was like July 29th or the 30th. All of a sudden, trade rumors, like, Braves closing in on Bud Norris deal. And I was like, oh, shit, I know nothing about this. And and I went to the office. I said, are we, did, are we close with the Braves and Bud Norris? And, and so I said, like, we haven't even talked to him about it. They, we haven't talked to him since May. Nothing's changed. Like, I don't know where this came from. Um, and so sometimes shit gets out that's just flat out not true, too. Yeah, I mean, obviously. I mean, listen, if you want to step back and, and think about it, like, was it possible that some scout or executive at another Absolutely. team wanted to put that out I don't, there? So, so yeah, that I don't, the, team, the team that wanted Bud Norris then felt like, right. oh, wow, now I got to really up my deal. Up, right. Up I, have, I have no idea what writer put it out there, but I, I guarantee you he didn't make it up. You know, he didn't just, yeah. you know, didn't just you know, come out of thin air. Um, I do want to talk about the second question here because I think it's actually very interesting. He said, you know, Passon will have it. And then four minutes later, every other major newsbreaker will say their source confirmed. Um, there was a while uh, back before Passon was with ESPN. And right, you know, I, you know, Passon and Rosenthal are kind of the kings of the newsbreakers right now. Obviously, plenty of other people break news, but those are your two primaries, I think. But there was a time, and I think you remember this well, where if someone um, not with ESPN broke a story like this, ESPN would then break it four minutes later saying sources confirm like they had it. And they would do the work. They would go get it confirmed by a source and then but, and never give any credit to the original breaker. Um, that happened for a while. And now it's, it's interesting how kind of the dynamic has changed at times because one of the main news breakers, being Jeff, is over at ESPN. Yeah, it's, I mean... Like, listen, this this like crediting game is is really it's, it's gotten it's, pretty out of control at this it's point. So dumb. We talked about this last. I talked about this last yeah. week with Eric. Like yeah. nobody remembers. Nobody, nobody remembers. remembers. I have yeah. no idea who broke the Fernando Tatis extension story. I have no idea. I may have been Ken. Might have been Jeff. Might have been a Padres guy. I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very fleeting currency. It is, and and you know, I think it's a product of the Twitter environment. 
Um, so mm-hmm. where like a person will want to sort of up their followers and whatever you want to call your brand and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, I don't think any fan really remembers any of that. And and I think it makes it it makes it a very difficult thing to gauge for news organizations how to prioritize some of this. You know, like if if I'm someone who is like a boss at you know, at some sort of publication, a sports publication, Am I trying to hire the person who's breaking news on Twitter or am I trying to hire the person who does really interesting stories? I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy not to be in that position anymore and I'm happy to have <laughs> left that environment. Right. Um, but it's, an, it's a really interesting thing. Like, you know, does the person who breaks all these stories on Twitter or at least, you know, confirms and, and all of that stuff, does that translate into the publication or is it really just an individual brand kind of thing right um, it's so it's you know listen as a writer for for a writer i understand why you'd want to do it you want to have that clout you want to have that that sort of popularity that gets you on tv that gets mm-hmm. you opportunities because ultimately that is probably going to get you paid right um but if you're a publication it it sort of does become a tricky thing into what you prioritize and when I was talking to fan, excuse me, but to Fangraphs about coming over here, uh, I told them like I don't, I'm not going to be a newsbreaker. Like I'm not going to be that person for you. I, I and I don't think I could do it as well as the as the Rosenthal's and Jeffs of the world. Period. First of all, but I also don't want to. I don't want that to be part of my lifestyle. I don't want to be you know constantly texting and schmoozing with people. I'd rather give you really good analysis of what just happened, <clears throat> as opposed to telling you what just happened. I think that's true. I mean, I think as a site, I think it makes a lot of sense to prioritize that. And I think, and I think for sites like that, for like a fan graphs or yeah. you know, your old shop baseball prospectus, the brand is the company, you know, it's right. like, like, you know what you're getting when you go to fan graphs and you know what you're getting when you go to some of these. Right. Other no places. one's expecting fan graphs to break news. Exactly. I, I go there to read what you have to say about the prospects that were involved in the deal that someone else mm-hmm. broke. Uh, like, that's really what I care about. Um, and actually, this is actually an interesting question for you that, that I had regarding this topic. I mean, how do you sort of gauge how you report what you hear about a prospect and sort of how that, what sort of the factors around, like, listen, there is a benefit for a team to downplay another person's prospect so that maybe that other teams don't look at that prospect. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> how yeah, do you, yeah. how do you weigh that when you sort of rank prospects and sort of talk to people about prospects? Because it's, it's super tricky. Tough. Yeah. I, I would, ra- I mean, I always do like, talking to if I'm, if I'm working on a team's prospects i do want to talk with people from that team you know people in the player development world if you will um and, and maybe scouting directors and things like that because you'll get good information about things like uh injuries um them working on new things new pitches or maybe you know transitioning to a new position or things like that i would rather talk to a scout with another team about the player himself you know what i mean yeah um sure. it's real good to, to to learn that you know from a person with the team oh that guy's in camp and looks good he's suddenly he's touching 96 you know and he used to only touch 93 that's good information but i'd rather it, it's tough to get like 
unless you really know the person, there's a few I really do trust to tell me the truth, but a lot of them are always going to have some sort of agenda or just even just a, it's just a sales job. I know um, someone with a certain team where um, if you ask him about a player and he goes, no, oh, he's pretty good. He can do some things. That's the worst prospect in the system. That's the baseline. <laughs> that's the floor, right. the floor of any players. You no, know, he's pretty good. He can do some things like that's the worst player. And you start from there and you say, so sometimes you have to kind of calibrate as well from, from there. But it's I, you do need to talk to people who don't have an emotional and or business interest in the in the player. Yeah, I mean, I think for someone like Eric who does the prospect rankings, but also does the draft stuff, and obviously you're going to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. That becomes super tricky because then, like, listen, what someone in the top ten says about a player who's going to be maybe in you know is who's maybe a top five six player but if there's enough bad press about that player maybe it drops to 10 mm-hmm. you know like like that is super tricky then like how do you sort of talk to a team about what they actually think about a player oh yeah i remember like in media go around number one um doing draft coverage and talking to a scouting director and he, he you know he talked about this guy and he really didn't like him and pointed a lot of holes in him and, and I wrote stuff like, ah, scouts see, scouts like this part of him, but here's some problems scouts have with him. And then that team took the player. <laughs> That's amazing. And that I remember, and, so I, and I called him and I was like, I was like, Hey, I'm writing about your draft. You took the guy you shit on. He's like, yeah, I did that. Didn't I? I was like, yeah, you did. And like, I'm not mad at you. I get it. I know what you were doing. Um, you know, and then he gave me a more honest appraisal of him. Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, obviously I think you have to, I think every reporter needs to, just sort of grasp the fact that everyone who you're getting information from has an agenda. Yeah. And what, and what does that actually just mean in the bigger picture? And then that sort of should sort of tell you how you need to play these stories. Our next email comes from Scooter. That's right. Scooter. Scooter says he hasn't had a monster season in Major League Baseball yet, but Shohei Otani is still one of the most interesting players in the league. If you were still with a team and your team had Otani, how would you want your team to use him? Hitter only, pitcher only, two-way player. If you were going to use him as a hitter and a pitcher, would you deploy him the same way the Angels play on using him this year, or would you advocate for a different usage pattern? I think Shohei Otani could be a really, really good Major League pitcher. I think Shohei Otani could be a really, really good Major League hitter. I think it's going to be incredibly difficult for him to be both at the same time. I would go one way or the other, and based on just kind of the health factor, I would just have him hit. That said, if you were going to do the two-way player thing, I do like what the Angels are doing in terms of kind of the, the once-a-week thing. I think that's a good way to, 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 to do it or a good way to try it out. But I, I just the work you have to put in to be a good hitter or a good pitcher is a full-time job. And I just don't think you should give a player two full-time jobs. I mean, I, I would love to see this guy make it as both. I mean, it would be amazing. It It would be be amazing. I mean, but the mental grind that it takes to try to be a hitter and a pitcher, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, if you're talking about someone, I mean, you're, we, we talk about players as like carrying hitting slumps into the field. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, now you got a, a guy who you could have a guy him go over 
you know, 15 at bats and he's got to start. Will he carry that to the mound? It's, it's like, I never it, thought of that. That's amazing. You know, like, cause we yeah. talk about it, a guy, you know, like a guy, yeah. his fielding is affected by his hitting. Like right. now we're talking about his pitching. So I think it's, I think it's an interesting experiment. And I don't know that there has been a more fascinating one in terms of, we're talking about like someone at this level at both, like, you know, we have guys who, who are okay. You know, like you have the McKay in Tampa. I mean, you know, you have guys who have the ability to do one thing or another, but not necessarily at this level on both. So I think as he gets older, I think it'll be really difficult for him to be able to do both. I think right now he's still young enough where maybe you can experiment with it. I, I I can't see him becoming a 28, 29, 30-year-old player and being able to do both. The grind physically is just not possible. Um, what you choose for him, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, when you see him hit, it you know, especially this spring, He's been it's, fantastic, it's yeah. fantastic. So how you not want him to hit every day it just is is difficult, but then also the potential that he brings to a staff is also great. I think you, I think while he's young, I think maybe you allow him to do it, but I think at some point one of the two will will play out in a better, right. bigger way. I think it's his body will dictate that. I really do think. I mean, I don't think that you can deny him the ability at this point, but I think one of them, the two, will sort of pop up ahead of the other. Final email comes from Josh. Josh says, hey, Kevin, big fan of the show. We got one. Look at that. Did you find multi-sport prep players to be particularly tough group to scout, or do teams now have enough data points to feel comfortable evaluating this sort of guy? For example, in spite of his very impressive football background, is it fair to project major improvement on Lonnie White Jr.'s hit tool once he focuses solely on baseball, or is the fact that he's been active on the showcase circuits and plays a prominent plays for a prominent high school program means teams look at him similarly to a baseball only prospect? Um, in general, teams really like multi-sport prep players just because it means they're you feel better about the athleticism. And for so many of these high school kids, even though you know White's at a, like you said at a premier program, like for so many of these high school kids who are not there. It, you're making pure tools bets. Like you don't get enough at bats. You don't get enough exposure for them against real pitching. And you go see the multi-sport kid. I'm just making up a, a state in Kansas and you go see him and, you know, you're going four for four against 83 mile an hour fastballs. You're not really sure how good he is. You're just betting on tools. And I think when you see those multi-sport kids, it, 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 it makes you feel more comfortable with the tools because it speaks to the athleticism. Um, and so it, for the most part, teams really like the multi-sport players. They, they, they think it's great. And you do often hear, um, you know, when scouts feel strongly about a player and trying to sell the director or, or whoever on the player, like, it always comes up. And you see, wait till you see how good this kid could be once he focuses solely on baseball. That's that's where it's all really going to take off. Um, but they're all tools bets, and, and those kids have the best tools. I mean, I think one thing I learned from, you know, I did a lot of coverage in Latin America. Right, right. Um, and I did a lot of, you know coverage of younger players in general. And I think the one thing that you can't do is generalize. So like to say, to try to cast a general thing about multi-sport players, I think is sort of dangerous. Like each individual kid 
has traits, qualities, skills that individually will tell whether they make it or not. Like you can't just say because this kid is a multi-sport guy, he won't make it or he can't hit or he has, you know, I, right. I think I think one of the worst things that baseball does is is sort of cast these generalizations on players. And I think to talk about Alani White and say, well, because of this, like this is, you know, his hit tool is not developed. I don't, you know, Lonnie White is an individual player whose hit tool will depend on his ability to handle failure, his ability to stay healthy. Like there are so many factors that will go into whether he is a successful player that go beyond the fact that he's just a, that he's a multi-sport guy. So to me, it's always felt like a dangerous thing to overgeneralize players based on, on that sort of like resume. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I do think that guys who have that athleticism, there's, it's so attractive, you know, it helps. It helps. It's so attractive to know. It's just kind of like, you know, you remember you hear guys, it's like, oh yeah, man, this guy, he can dunk. I'm like, okay, that's great. Like, can he hit? Like, but he can dunk. So like, right. maybe he can hit. <laughs> so it's like, but it's like, you know, and you have teams that are so in love with guys like that, you know? Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. And like, I mean, even if you talk about like a team like the Padres, like, you know, AJ Preller loves Athletes. athletic yes. toolsy guys. Um, it's just about finding the other factors in their makeup, in their backgrounds that will tell you whether that will translate into a successful major league player. I mean, I don't think that there's a, a typecast that you can say that, that will, will or won't, you know, it's up to mm-hmm. finding out about the individual and, and sort of what they can handle or can't handle. And and as you know, Kevin, as you know, failure is so much part of this game that, you know, sometimes you right. have multi-sport guys that are not used to failing at anything that they do. And when they do, they it crushes them. them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the super interesting things that you mentioned last week when you were talking with Eric was, you know, yes, I do listen to the, the podcast. Yeah, um, one, of, one of a four, one of a few. One of the few. But, you know, when you talked about a guy who has to learn to fail before they really want to try something new until you can change their swings. Mm-hmm. And you, you were talking about that last week, and it's so true. Like, players who have succeeded at every level of their life, who have been a great basketball player, football player, it's really hard to convince them that like failure is okay and that you can learn from it. And the guys who do it, those are the ones that will end up having some success. And the even weirder ones sometimes are the guys who, it's, all, it's, it's, it's usually high school players who you know, go to their first full season and the club's really happy with what they're doing. They're hitting 280, but their whole high school life, they hit 700 and they're miserable. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, you're leading the team in hits right now. Do you realize that? I'm only hitting 280. It sucks. I just suck out there. And it's just amazing that it's just the, you know, it's just, it's just their context based on what they were. Absolutely. I mean, like, listen, you have to, I mean, I hate to make this so Padre centric, but like you have a guy like <laughs> CJ Abrams who gets drafted mm-hmm. behind a guy's probably who he probably thinks he's better than. 
and then he he goes in and he crushes it when his first pro ball and then right. they bring him into spring training and he's getting rave reviews and he's hitting 280 you know it's spring right, training right. but but getting rave reviews and i'm sure there's part of him that's like i've had a shitty spring you know yeah, like and so sure. it's a matter it's a matter of like how you accept that like whether you accept that you can understand the positives and you're learning from it or you're just down on yourself because you're hitting 280 um, but to go back to the athleticism piece one more, just real quickly, you know, the Astros had a very good and well-deserved reputation for um, signing Latin arms, sometimes older Latin arms, um, older as in 18, 19, um, and, and having them turn into something, if you will. And, and, and all of them had significant velocity gains. And, and part of that was signed a lot of them because they were $10,000 players, right? So you could you could accumulate them, if you will. But in addition, people, you know, I had so many people go like, what did you see in this guy? Like, why did he stand out? Why did you sign him? You know, he was passed up for two years. And the Astros signed tons of these Latin arms. It was just based so solely on kids super athletic and the deliveries loose. Right? That was it. And it's like, and some of these guys are going to have big velo gains and some are never going to get off the island. But let's get a few of them in there and see what happens because these are the guys who the players who get the big velo gains have that profile. Absolutely. I mean, listen, you can very easily make an argument that the best strategy in Latin America is to sign 10 $100,000 guys rather than one $1 million guy. Yeah. You know, like guys who are super toolsy, who maybe get overlooked, um, that that is a better investment. Or to sign... 10 thousand dollar guys rather than signing a five million dollar guy you know it's like like you said it's like these lotto tickets and what is the rate of return on investment right people are like what do you see in anoli paredes and it's just like well, he's older he's five foot nine no one gave a shit about him and like how hard was he throwing i'm like i don't know upper 80s and like what'd you like about him I'm like well he's incredibly athletic the delivery was super loose and when he was done working out and you talked to him it became clear in two seconds it was 80 makeup yeah. I mean, listen, Go. you have you have guys who in Latin America who have been overlooked for years and who still get after it as an yeah. 18, 19 year old, like the the sort of determination to make it that says something about a kid. Absolutely. To, to basically have people when you're 16 and 15 tell you like you'll never make it. And to continue to go after it and to train hard and to get yourself to at a level when you're 18, to throw in the 90s, to sort of have put yourself in, in the position to be signed, that, that says something about a kid. And I think that is undervalued at times. So uh, that's it for the listener email. Again, if you want to email us, please do so. Chinmusic at Fangraphs.com. It's time for a Jorge update. Uh, Jorge, you were going to co-host episode three of the podcast and uh, everything seemed to be going well. And then uh, all of a sudden I said, hey, are you free on Thursday? And you said, in theory, yes, I have to make sure I don't have COVID first. And then you got COVID. I did. <laughs> I got, I That's got right. COVID. That was Devin, the New York Times Metro editor focused on COVID got COVID. I got COVID and um, it was something that was surprising to me. I mean, simply because I've been super careful. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I think it does goes to show that this is still an unpredictable 
virus, you know, like you don't, you know, my girlfriend got it first and then I got it. Um, we've both been wearing double masks for months. Um, so it does speak to the fact that no matter what you do, there is some risk. So right. when we, so in the earlier segment, when we talked about like, is going to a game outside at 20%, is that a low risk sort of environment? Yeah, it's lower risk. It's not zero risk. Um, you can still get it. It can still hit you. Thankfully, um, we were not sort of the type of cases that ended up hospitalized. It was sort of like a moderate infection, which but is you were still, still, I mean, you were, you were still knocked out for, uh, let's yeah. use, let's use podcast time. You're still knocked out for, for a couple episodes. Like they're, they're yeah, yeah I, I can't go. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, I think all the things that you hear about it are true. I mean, I don't want to, I want to make did sure you that did, you, I don't underplay what it means you did, to you have did, you did treat it. You did treat it yourself at home though, right? You didn't, did you, you never had to go to a hospital or anything? I never had, thankfully it never got to that point. Um, but, but you, you felt know, like what, shit. You, yeah, it knocks you out. I mean, it does, I mean, you have the disorientation, you have the fogginess, you have, I mean, I think the one thing that that I sort of was not expecting is sort of the mental grind of having COVID, which is mm -hmm. like you, and, and this is like, an, I, I experienced this in a way that I have never experienced any other illness where I would have a few symptoms. I would feel a little bit better thinking that you're so over the hump. And then the next day you would have new symptoms that were different. Mm. So it's like for an eight or nine day stretch, you're, you're basically going through five, six different symptoms and it comes at you one after another. Um, and it just, it does really sort of knock you and it does test you mentally. Um, because you just, you just don't know when it's actually going to be over. Cause like you felt it was going to be over five days ago and then something new came. Um, and it's scary. I mean, it's scary because yeah, it's scary because you, you know, having very much been a part of the coverage for this, for the New York times, I, I know all the horror stories. I know that this thing can turn on a dime that one day you're feeling okay. And two days later you're not, and it could be really serious. So I think the mental aspect of it is a real thing and it's, and it's scary. And I, and I, you know, and I urge everyone to, to take it seriously again, you know, I think it's okay to think about a life post COVID, but I, you know, it's also say, you know, it's also sort of responsible to understand that we're not there yet. That, that every, that every sort of activity you, you take has some risk to it and you do have to weigh it, you know, like, is it worth it or not? Um, and again, you know, when we were talking in the earlier segment, yeah, you know, it's, you do go into lower risk environment and it's still not a hundred percent. That right. being said, you know, I think vaccinations make a huge difference and I think it's a game changer to get vaccinated. And I think once you do get vaccinated, I think that does increase sort of how you look at it. Um, but until you, until you're at that point, you just don't know. I mean, I think it's, it is much of a crapshoot. Now, Obviously, you know, you're no longer a member of the sports media. You are a more, you're far more legit. You're, you're a real media person now. You're from the New York Times. You cover COVID. This is, 
your life every day because it's your job, right? And and we've read, and I think we've all experienced, um, like COVID fatigue. Like we're all fucking tired of this. You have to deal with it as part of your job every day, whether you want to or not. Like everyone else experiencing COVID, he can just take a, I'm just going to play video games all day. I just can't deal with today. Like this is how exhausted, has it been? How have you dealt with it? Like how, how has it been? Like how has it been a struggle? Has it been, has it taken its toll on you? And, and like, how have you managed this for yourself personally? I mean, I think it's definitely been an exhausting experience. <laughs> um, I mean, there's days when, you know, like you said, other people can just say, you know what, I'm not going to read every every news item about it. I'm not going to be as sort of informed about this today or tomorrow. You know, for the next few days, I'm not going to f- figure out what the developments are. That's right. really I'm going a- to exercise self-care today. You can't do that. That's not an option for me. I mean, I have to be aware of everything. I have to be aware of both the way the virus is reacting in New York City and also how the vaccination effort is going. So I have to be aware of all of that. And it's my responsibility to 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 make sure that New Yorkers know what's happening. And I take a lot of pride in that. I mean, yes, it is an exhausting thing personally at times, but I also understand it's a huge responsibility. And I feel I'm a person who's capable of of sort of accepting that responsibility and and doing my best to try to make sure that New Yorkers know what's happening because I know how important it is for 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 people to know what's happening and to try not to panic the shit out of them and to be <laughs> honest with them um about what is happening and you know is this something I can do for the rest of my career I don't think so <laughs> I don't right. real, realistically I don't think that I can you know, be the coronavirus person for the next five years. Um, I think I would love to try to do it a little bit more and, and get us through the, the summer of vaccination. But I do, you know, I do have other interests. I do think that I'd love to try to have other coverage areas and, mm-hmm. and talk about different things and, and you know, start to, to re, you know, to think about a reality, not just in my personal life, but in my professional life that's post-COVID. I mean, it is, it is a lot. And I have to say that the reporters that I work with who, are, who have been there for the last year as well, I have uh, the utmost respect for them. I mean, they are going through it the same way. They are having direct conversations with people who've experienced the worst of it, people who have given the most grim prognostications and each day they have to come back and we have to work together on putting stories together. I remember in, you know, April of last year when it was the peak in New York city and it was a absolutely horrifying situation. Um, People were dying by the thousands. Right. And we had, our reporters at night getting calls from healthcare workers who essentially were just unloading on them. I mean, it was like 
the yeah, reporters yeah, yeah. the reporters were being therapists for healthcare workers at that point and the weight of that is is just monumental and i can't say enough about the work that our reporters have done and the gratitude that i have for the way that they've sort of carried on and put this effort for the sake of people knowing what's happening and i think what we can't lose is is a, and i hope that we continue to sort of recognize that is that we can't forget that effort and and sort of put that away and and then sort of think and not think that there's going to be some kind of long-term toll to that i mean i think we just have to make sure that all the people that have been doing this reporting for us can can stand back and sort of assess where they are and and they're and hopefully they're doing okay and if not then we need to help them get through that because it's it's a mental grind and and i just I, like i said i can't express my gratitude enough about it and and obviously you know this is you're, you're covering it in new york for a, a long time and maybe even now i'm not i'm sure how it seen but new york was the epicenter of the epidemic or the of the you know in in the united states and you know as someone who just again i'm not a medical professional i don't report on this for a living i think it's very easy for someone like me to see this and get irate at how this country handled what happened and think this was horrible and they did a horrible job and as someone who was up close to it how much of you feels that way and how much feels how much of you feels it might have been a horrible job, but I don't know what they could have done anyway, or, or, or is it just, do you do have some excuses? Like, look, I don't know how, how else this, this could have gone. I think, I think it's a combination of all of those things. I think, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, I think it's fair to say that it's an, a type of epidemic that no one had experienced. It's a once in a generation type of thing. And so I think you have to understand that there's a certain level of just cluelessness to some of this, you know, like our, our public officials just didn't know what was coming. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also a factor of like, once they started to know what was coming, that they didn't act quick enough. Yeah. Um, because it's a really hard thing to shut down a city as, as we've continued to see. Um, even when we know the toll that it takes. Um, but there's also, you know, I think there's so many things about healthcare in this country in general that are so systemic or just in general the way that our country is structured that allowed this to be worse than it 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 could have been. Right. The fact that the fact that each individual locale, and by locale I mean like New York City, Los Angeles, decal that they have to individually figure out what to do right. is tragic. There's the fact that we don't have a system in place that allows for a uniform response to uh, an epidemic like this is just tragic. I mean, you're leaving the decisions up to people that have no experience in this. And you're essentially asking everyone to come up with their own plan. Um, and, it, and I think that that exposed how sort of inefficient the system is. And if we're talking about healthcare, and if we're talking even about the vaccination effort, 
the fact that each individual metropolitan area has to come up with their own rollout plan, their own website for scheduling appointments, that is about as inefficient as you can possibly get. Like right. you're not, you're not, you're not using all the resources available to this country to to come up with a uniform plan in order to. If we if we were able to have a centralized federal website that even a template that each city could pick up to use, how much easier would that be for everyone to sign up for a vaccine? Mm-hmm. But we don't have that. We have New York City having to try to come up with its own plan. Um, we have New York State in general trying to come up with a plan. We have Long Island having to come up with their own sort of website. So we're asking everybody to do the same work over and over and over again. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways in which this thing could have gone better, but there's a lot of ways that really it was set up to happen this way. And so, you know, you were a sports writer, you were a baseball beat writer. Um, You know, we talked about you working at ESPN covering Mexican soccer. You worked in sports media, um, which and I say as a member of sports media, it's, it's kind of bullshit. And now you are a real news editor for the New York Times. Um, like, what was the transition of going from kind of sports to the real world? Not just in terms of kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say the importance of the story. I think sports are important to people. People need escapes too. But in terms of, of almost like journalistic standards. You know, it's funny. I mean... I feel like a lot of my sports background has made me a better news editor. <laughs> and, and, and I'll tell you why. It's like the fact that I was a beat writer who had to write game stories on deadline, mm-hmm. often like writing a thousand words in 20 minutes, that's insane pressure. And I think that that is translatable to anything else that I do under deadline in a news setting. Um. The ability to deal with controversial things and difficult sources and high profile sources that mm-hmm. I dealt with in the sports world that translates, you know, like, listen, you, we, you know, you can say that it's, you know, it's not as serious to have to be reporting on trades, but it is super high profile. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, it gets attention. So you're dealing with athletes that are as famous as any politicians that I'll ever deal with or, you know, my reporters will deal with. So I know how it is to deal with famous people. So there's a lot of things that have helped me that I think has actually put me in a really good position in the news environment. Um, And so I think that that sort of stuff does translate. Um, On the opposite end, I, you know, I do think that like things like sourcing are ramped up to a significant degree when you get to the news side like there's things that i reported as a sports writer that i would not allow myself to report as a news writer like like, as an editor like what like like, like, give an example i would just say like you know like a trade rumor like a trade rumor that i hear from somebody again this is going back to like what the agenda is about you know, do I feel there's some truth to it? Yeah. I mean, how how much of it at that time did I think it was likely to happen? I don't know. I certainly would not have that level, 
like the the bar would be much higher if I was reporting a rumor about the governor, you know, mm-hmm. for example. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, I, and there have been I, a few. And there's been many. Um, <laughs> so like the bar in order to be able to report something is just a lot higher. I mean, it's just, it really is. I mean, some of the the sourcing that I did as a sports writer would not pass the test as a news writer. And it just, I think, you know, I think part of it is I've gotten more sophisticated in terms of learning about sourcing as you get older as a reporter. But I think also just the environment itself, like, you know, the repercussions for getting a story wrong on the news side just don't compare to the repercussions on the sports side. You know, well, I mean, the difference is is, is, <laughs> is, is, between, is is on the sports side, it's kind of zero. On the news side, that's your ass. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we can't rep- – if we report a negative story – I mean, uh, an incorrect story, I'll say, not negative. An incorrect story about a public official, it's it's – tragic for us mm-hmm. um if this if the trade rumor that i reported as a sports writer doesn't happen oh well mm-hmm. <laughs> like no one's gonna really remember that you know right, like right right like yeah it got it got some play on mlb trade rumors but and maybe some people linked to it but it ultimately it's not it, it going matter. to make or break you yeah and so, is, but is that okay because ultimately because that it did, it doesn't matter that that trade didn't happen. It doesn't matter at all. While the other story does, like, is it okay that maybe sports have a different standard or a lower standard, or should you know? Now that you've done both, do you think sports should have a higher standard? I mean, I think it depends what you're talking about, right? Like, I think, I think, if we're talking about trade rumors, then I think it's a little bit less about like mm-hmm. you know stringent but if we're talking about the Mets GM and sexual harassment accusations I think that that bar is high right and it should be high yeah absolutely so I think you know I think it just depends on the situation and I think as part of the way that sort of society has begun to look at sports in a way that in a lot of ways does reflect what is happening in news I think those standards need to sort of move up in that world as well like that way Again, if I'm reporting on a trade rumor, like, what does it even mean? You know, like, two te- like somebody called another team about a player and they were like, eh, okay, sure, maybe. Like, and I report that as a trade rumor. I mean, it's not incorrect, but it's certainly not necessarily, like, I may not play, you know, I don't necessarily have to play it, like, that it's not going to happen. I can play that they talked and it is a correct. Right, right, right. But um- I th- yeah, so I think, you know, if we're talking about, I, and especially as we get some of the societal issues into sports, I think some of those bars do have to be raised a little bit. And so uh, you, 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 had, you got COVID you, two weeks ago now. Um, are you 100%? Um, I would say that I'm close. Uh, I so still you still feel it a little bit? I still have my sense of smell and taste. Oh, did you lose? You is, are they I like? I did lose that. Are they a hundred percent gone right now? Is it just like you, no? I would you don't say taste anything, or just like you barely taste things. I would say that I'm at sixty percent, sixty sixty five percent back at that, and that's sort of like gradually come back, but also to get to sixty percent, like it was like a very fast return, 
but from 60 to 65% has felt like a grind at that point, if right. that makes sense. Like I got to a certain point and now it, the recovery has started to feel slow. When it was at, when it was at its lowest, your sense of taste, like what was it at? I mean, it was probably like 15%. I couldn't really taste anything. Like if I could, like if it's some sort of blindfold test and someone said, what is this? You would have struggled. Yeah. I mean, listen, you could have given me a bowl of gravy and I couldn't have, <laughs> <laughs> I would have, I would have eaten that thing and it wouldn't have tasted as horrible as gravy usually tastes to me. <laughs> we had our chance. Yeah. We you, blew it. You missed the window for, for gravy. Um, at this point, I could probably taste enough of the gravy to feel grossed out by it. Yes. I think we now have a podcast title. You missed the window for gravy. <laughs> um, so, I mean, all in all, it's weird. Like, do you miss sports at all? I mean, I know obviously you're still a big sports fan, but like, do you miss reporting on it? Or, you know, it's, I know it's a very difficult question. You do what you do now. You did what you did then. The world changes. Um, obviously you're very engrossed what you're doing now. Um, do you feel a different satisfaction in the sense that what you're doing now is for lack of a better term important? You know, I, I'll tell you that the story, some of the stories that we've done in the last year have resulted in policy changes. And I can't tell you how satisfying that is. I mean, right. the fact that we did stories about vaccines getting thrown away because of the stringent state regulations and less than 24 hours later, they changed the regulations and vaccines were no longer being thrown away. Right. That is a really, really satisfying thing. That's a real and thing. It, yeah. And it makes you feel really good about the job that you're doing. Um, that being said, I, I miss the camaraderie of sports sometimes. Um, and, and then sort of like, you know, I was asking when I, my question to Russell about, you know, the beat and sort of being in the, at the ballpark and having these conversations with people like I miss that. Like I miss I miss sitting down and talking to a player with their guard down and just learning so much about mm -hmm. baseball. Like there was a time and this is I can't even tell you how how much it meant to me at the time that I was in the dugout with Tony Gwynn who was a player that I idolized growing up and it's, I was a, I was a reporter I literally spent more than an hour talking to him about lefties hitting lefties <laughs> it's like it sounds like the lamest possible thing not at all but he he was so fascinating and and we were talking about this in the dugout before a game and he was so into it that we talked up until they made me and him leave the dugout because they were starting a game and he was a broadcaster at that point. Mm -hmm. And they kicked us off the field because they were, <laughs> they were literally right. about to start a game, but it we was were time having, to clear. It was time to clear. And we were having such a fascinating conversation and he gave me his cell phone number, which I still have programmed in my phone. Oh, wow. And it's one of the highlights of my career as a journalist. And do I have those types of moments now? I don't necessarily have that. Um, I have, you know, an angry politician calling me sometimes right. <laughs> to, to air me out about something that they didn't like about a story or about how they don't like a story that we're about to publish. So it's different. Um, there's things about it I, I definitely miss 
in terms of the sports world. Um, at the same time, I don't particularly miss sports media. Right. I don't miss the environment of what it's turned into. And I've had, you know, I've been super flattered to have had opportunities of people coming back to me and offering me really interesting possibilities that five years ago I would have jumped at to, to lead and to be sort of, you know, running things that I would have never in my life thought I would be running in the sports world. And it doesn't interest me. It just, I've just moved on and I'm past that. And I've sort of have a new focus and my focus is, you know, senior leadership at a news organization at uh, a, a, a level that's different from sports, you know, to be yeah, just sure. in general, general senior leadership. So um, I am very grateful for the career that I've had and, and all the experiences that I've had. I just know that I am in a new phase of that and it's not sports anymore. Uhura, we've, we've, we've yammered enough today. If people want to follow you on Twitter, where do they go? Um, you can follow me at Jorge, J-O-R-G-E dot A-R-A-N-G-U-R-E. Um, it's just first dot last name. I'm definitely more boring on Twitter than I used to be. I don't tweet as That's much. That's okay. Um, still, still talk to Nikki P sometimes. Certainly you can follow me. I'm I'm happy to <laughs> to have you. I'm also not insulted if you decide not to. Uh, you know, that's like one of the things that you give up when you're an editor. It's like, I'm not the th- the, th- the person anymore. You know, I'm not. Right, right, right. I don't necessarily need it. I don't need the attention. I don't need to build up my follower count. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, it, it is it is a whole new world than it was 10 years ago, Kevin. The last time <laughs> <laughs> I co-hosted a podcast with you, we well, were just we'll- older. We're way older. I, you know, I turned I turned fifty two in two days. Well, good, good for you, Kevin. So. I'm not going to talk about my age, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> but good, God bless you for for being so transparent about that. <laughs> are you really hung? Are you really hung up about that? I mean, I'm I'm, I'm just not going to talk about it, Kevin. <laughs> So, well, I hope I, 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 I honestly and sincerely hope it's not ten years again before you're you're co-hosting with me. I would love to anytime. And again, I can't say enough about how much how, how many fond memories I have to be part of the up and in cinematic universe, <laughs> <laughs> and to see both of my good friends have won a World Series as part of a front office is was an absolute thrill to me um and again it's it's so it's great to to be on a podcast with you again (laughs) it's great to have you uh thanks to everyone for listening we'll see you next week and uh email timsfangrax.com and that's it we'll talk to you later
Oh, oh, oh.